Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by John Merrick, a writer and editor who works with Verso Books. We talk a little bit about the history of the Radical Thinkers Publishing Project, the history of Verso Books, and the culture of publishing. Right now, you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails, but in a second, you'll hear our conversation about book publishing and left culture. John Merrick is a writer and editor working out of London. His work lies between cultural and literary criticism and British history, with a particular focus on the relationship between culture and class. He works as an editor for Verso Books, as well as contributes uh, freelance writing and editorial work. His work has appeared in TLS, New Statesman, Tribune, Jacobin, No Left Review, Boston Review, and elsewhere. And he has been a writer in residence at Autonomy and an independent progressive think tank that focuses on the future of work and economic planning. And according to this, you're also working on a book project on the experience of working class life in contemporary Britain based on your childhood and family life. Um, So thank you very much for agreeing to come on. Thank you very much for having me. It's great. I on behalf of my other show co-hosts reached out um, in part because we we kind of just wanted to see if we could get someone from Verso to appear on the show because all we do is we read Verso books <laughs> in the med- and um, we figured like if we could, it would be actually be re- really good to have someone who, who's working with them to talk about kind of the company and, and what the Radical Thinkers series really is. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've interviewed quite a few people that are Verso authors or soon to be Verso authors mm-hmm. actually too. So we, we figured, you know, might as well go all the way and see if we could get someone, someone on the inside to yeah, talk straight from the horse's bit. mouth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'd love to talk about the radical thinkers. It's, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> all the time. Um, but yeah, no, it's good. It's, you know, I think radical thinker series in particular was so formative, my own kind of intellectual development. Um, you know, I joined the company quite a lot after the kind of radical things had started. Um, so, you know, it's real kind of pleasure to kind of talk about it with other people and, you know, to hear that it's it's also formative in other people's kind of political, intellectual development. It is it's kind of a real honor, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's great. I can't remember exactly what the first thing I encountered through the Radical Thinker series probably was. I do remember realizing Versa was probably the first time I realized that there was something called like left-wing publishing. Um, And I feel like it might've been, you know, one of, there's a, I got into Henry Lefebvre through um, Critique of Everyday Life and there's a really Mm. nice uh, volume um, of his writings on modernity in the Radical Thinker series that I think was one of the first ones that I picked up. Um, but it's it's a really interesting project because they are, you know, they're small, affordable volumes by recognizable thinkers, um, but it's also very eclectic. Uh, I was a little bit surprised realizing that it was actually as recent uh, as it was. I thought that maybe it was one of those things that, you know, went back to it being, you know, when Verso was new left books or something right, yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> Um, no, I think, I think it was, it's 2005 or something. Yeah, like 2005. That. I think was the, the first series. We had that kind of um, the the you know the kind of um, almost like cardboard looking covers, um, mm-hmm. kind of brown ones for the first series. Like you know, some with Altazar's um, four marks in that, and kind of a few others. And then yeah, but yeah, it's fairly recent. So that's you know less than 20 years ago. Kind of we've had a few series before though. We had um in the 90s was like Verso Classics, which is a much smaller mm-hmm. series. But yeah, this is the first time I think it was really kind of brought together. And, and, you know, the aim was, as you say, to bring, you know, these books kind of wide readership, have them cheaply, cheaply, you know, um, uh, for sale cheaply um, and get to get them out to as many people as possible. Um, you know, we realized that, you know, it's part of the kind of tradition of the house is that it's based on this kind of uh, engagement with like European thinkers. Right, kind of philosophy, theory, whatever else. You know, the first kind of list lineup of series. I think the first book that we, the company published was um, Reading Capital, Althusser, mm-hmm. Alabar. There was a couple of others, and they were all translations in the first five years. So, you know, the part of the, the series was to honor that and also to get them out as kind of as cheaply as possible. Um, and yeah, I also remember my, my first one. I think I was like 21. And I remember I got it 
from the Waterstones in Leeds, and it was a book I still haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the the is Zizek and uh, is it Zizek Leclau and um, Judith Butler, Butler the Contingency mm-hmm. Hegemony Universality book. Still never opened it, or but yeah, I remember like going in there and it, you know seeing these books was. It really was kind of like a, an intellectual awakening. I think you're right. It was the first time I realised was something like left-wing publishing. And, um, just feel very strange now that I work for the company that I like, that got me in tro- it, like, interested mm-hmm. in any of this stuff originally. Yeah, I think um, looking at, you know, one of the things that we've been curious about is kind of looking at the trajectory of what got published through the series um, because because obviously one of the features of it is that it's almost always it's always a, a republication of something that's been previously featured um and sometimes it's stuff that's uh quite old and clearly like wasn't you know the the rights were available but other times some of the new stuff it's like um because the last couple sets have mostly been redoing the the early sets and then featuring another um one or two original ones. Um, yeah. For the, I think it was a uh, Nancy Frazier that was mm-hmm. actually already had previously been a verso release, but got turned into an addition through for the radical thinker series. Yeah. That's um, right. and, and then I can't remember, I feel like there was one other original one recently, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah. No, um, can I? I yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, I think it's interesting looking at how the earlier ones tend to be this mixture of, kind of the influential new left figures like you get an Adorno book you get a lot of Althusser uh Ricoeur um and then it's but then it's also a fair amount of this kind of the I feel like between after the 90s up until fairly recently with the 2008 stuff there was kind of that you know lacuna of like left stuff happening and so there's kind of a mixture of that new left stuff and then there's that kind of final push of the 90s of of figures with Baudrillard and uh Leclau and move um and this kind of attempt to reformulate the left um so you get that kind of interesting mix of those two things and then kind of midway through it starts being less about the really wide sets and you get the uh short the kind of more condensed like four books uh, a set and they get and and there's a lot more themed sets so there's like a set that's all marks it's yes, all stuff right. on marks all stuff on feminism all stuff on uh the gay liberation movement um all stuff on uh, black radical thinking um yeah. uh so we've been kind of interested in that in that trajectory um do you i mean obviously you weren't there like for the the beginning but do you feel like you know the the nature of the project while obviously it's still about producing theory for an affordable readership like do you think that it's one of those things that the the project itself kind of changes with the times um in terms of what it focuses on yeah you can almost kind of i mean you look at the first set and i you know i actually don't have it in front of me but i think it was something like there was maybe one or maybe no female, right? There was it was all men, so it was like six books by men. And then, you know, we realised this kind of the 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 um, you know the sets developed over the years. You know, doing one a year, you, you, we can't do that anymore. You know, it, it really was kind of blinkered. So you do get this. You can kind of read the history of the left and its relationship to literature and books through the particular volumes that we do. And I think that's this completely right. You know, the first few series were us trying to get back into print cheaply books that were kind of foundational for the house. So again, you can read the history of Verso through it and, and New Left books before. So, you know, you obviously get the big ones, the big foundational ones, the Adorno's, the Autism, that were the kind of the works of intellect, you know, Western Marxism, intellectual Marxism from Europe that Verso brought over first time in the 70s. And before that were being published as essays in New Left Review. Then you get, I suppose, by the 90, 80s and 90s, the Publishing House really just focused much more, you know, I suppose they'd exhausted that list of, you know, canonical texts of, mm-hmm. of Western Marxism. And they do start bringing over then less kind of the Marxist uh, theory stuff. So you get Paul Virilio, you get, as you say, John Baudrillard, you get a few of the others that are kind of, you know, engaging with Marx in a very different way, that kind of postmodern moment or something of, of theory, you know, the, the real kind of theory moment in the early 90s was, you know, Verso alongside semiotext in, in the US were really the ones doing that. Um, obviously, they had like Deleuze and Guattari. We had kind of both uh, Baudrillard. So, you know, it's 
so that's the kind of the initial first few series. And you get that kind of going until until probably like set three or four. And then we, you know, we were doing a lot of books, one a year. We kind of then started running out of the ones that were Verso did originally. So then we start bringing in a new one. So I mean, a big one for me, and that would be Gillian Rose, whose work I, you know, it's been hugely influential on my own. I think she's incredible and was completely out of print her most of her books for a long time. And, you know, between, you know, we did brought back in the, the book on Adorno and and Hegel Contra Sociology, which are more or less impossible to get hold of, other than very expensively. Um, and there's been a few others that we kind of brought back. But again, it was, you know, we more or less then exhausted that doing 12 mm-hmm. books a year in a huge sets, right? Big project to kind of get all of these out at the same time. Hence why we then went to the, the, the sets of four. So you're completely right. This is, you know, it has changed a lot. The things that we do have changed a lot. And, you know, some more successfully than others. First, you know, most of our big sellers in the medical things are the original ones. You know, it mm-hmm. is it is adorned. It's the ones that we redid recently. And those you said, um, kind of doing the classics of versus radical thinkers again. Um, and that allowed us to kind of do new things for them. So the newest edition of Adorno's Minimum Moralia, for instance, the original edition, um, it was just a kind of scan. You know, it mm-hmm. happens a lot, a scan of the original one. But some of the, it, it wasn't very good quality. I think it was, you know, it was quite messy. So we reset that. So it's in a nice kind of, you know, it's much more readable now. It's just a, a physical object. It's a much kind of nicer object. And we've done that with a few others. And, you know, it kind of allows us to really treat, you know, look after our backlist and the things that make us verso, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I suppose we can talk more later about the kind of sets of four, which I think is really, was an interesting time to, I was when I was working on it, when we were doing those. And that was an interesting moment. We had, um, you know, we had a lot of fun kind of trying to think up, <laughs> you know, themed sets and what they should be. And, you know, we, you know, it was, um, and part of that was to bring writers who aren't kind of like, uh, white men, white European men, back into the into the kind of canon of, of radical thinking. Hmm. Honestly, I think those those have some of my favorite ones because because of how clear the topics are that it, yeah. and and how much that drives. Um, and, and some of the topics are not like things that I think I would have immediately have, have thought of, like because there's you know there's ones that are like okay, Marx, feminism you know, they like, like black, black radical thought, like, um, all those are all like big parts of left literature, but then it will have a set that's like discussions in science or something like that. that, And, and it has like a a book about like physics in it and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, this is a, that's a really, uh, a a very different unexpected kind of thing from this series. Um, yeah, we had my favorite one being the, the Jewish radical thinkers. Oh, that. That Which was, was like a again like a, a kind of slightly out there for a choice, but I think the books are great in that. I think they're like that was maybe my favorite set of four. Actually, I think that's a brilliant series. I think uh, one of the things that's interesting that's kind of popped up a little bit uh, in our conversation is just it's just how you know Verso was the new left publisher in mm-hmm. in England in the UK. Um, and you know it has a strong tie to the development of things like uh, New Left Review, um, particularly around the time of like Perry Anderson's kind of shift in its uh, uh, in its direction. From what I understand, um, it's somewhat controversial in terms of you know E.P. Thompson's <laughs> opinion of it, yep. um, but also the yeah the introduction of Althusser. Um, the kind of structural Marxism, but also the in influence of simultaneously things like the Frankfurt School. Um, and I think that it, it what's interesting about that period, uh, regardless of, you know, what one says about its development or trajectory, you know, Perry Anderson has also been kind of done a self-critique of of his the theory of it with, you know, the the little book on Western Marxism. But um it does point to like the way that publishing culture is a, a, a pretty fascinating political feature and force in and of itself. And I think it's interesting looking at how, you know, publishing culture, not as just individual authors who are these great thinkers, but that publishing is, a, is you know, a, a fairly involved process with many people mm. involved in, in producing it and it requires 
uh, a lot of resources and intensity and uh, a readership um, to get it out. And I think it's, so I, I'm kind of curious what you think about, you know, what that says about the origins of, of Versio and New Left books as this kind of moment, but also, uh, you know, kind of what that means as as someone working in publishing to think of a, a political publishing project yeah. as having influence as, you know, um, uh, as a cultural force. Yeah, completely. I think you're, yeah, that, that's an incredibly perceptive way of, of, of reading it. I, I think, you know, when Verso was founded from New Left Review, it's kind of, was the book arm of New Left Review. Um, founded in 1970 from discussions that were happening in the late 60s, I think in, internal to the review. And, um, you know, I think the big question they were looking to answer was, A, how do you create a revolutionary culture in Britain that doesn't exist currently? But also, in a, you know, you had in Germany, you had like places like Zerkamp, uh, publishers like Zerkamp, you have publishers in France like Maspero, um, the Sfeltrinelli in Italy. They, you know, they were all kind of foundational moments, publishers in the new lefts in those respective countries. And they did a lot, you know, you know, they were publishing kind of like cheap editions and selling hundreds of thousands of like Che Guevara and like Mao, um, as well as, you know, like Adorno, everything else. You know, they were, there was this kind of network of radical publishers. And I think they looked at the UK and they were like, this isn't happening. There's a reason. And they, you know, you look at kind of Perry Anderson's early writing and they tied that kind of like lack of a left, foundational left culture in Britain with the kind of, um, you know, I suppose the kind of hegemonic kind of ideological strata of the country at the same time. So, like, how do you create, how do you inculcate a revolutionary culture? That's, and obviously part of that then is thinking about developing an active readership. Um, there was this, like, fascinating internal document and from the early days of the, of the like, of the, the publishing project when it was New Left Books. I think it was before we, they did the first one, um, where they tried to set out the aims of what Verso was. And to be honest, it's pretty damn close to what we do now. It's kind of wild. It's like reading through it. They incredibly ambitious document, but they said, you know, they wanted, whereas most of the publishers publish books kind of ad hoc, they do them as like individual books. First, so the, the, or the, the impetus behind New Left Books was to create an active readership that would come to us, would buy the books every time that, you know, bought into the kind of, I suppose, the culture of it, it was to develop a left-wing culture in Britain. Um, and I think that's what we do now. You know, I mean, I, you know, talking purely from kind of anecdotal kind of personal experience, I, before I got the job at Verso, I used to just buy Verso books because they were Verso, you know? Mm. That's just like what I did. I went into a bookshop. It was before, and when I first started was when they first started selling on the website. So I used to go into Waterstones or whatever bookshop and just buy it because it was Verso when it was new. Um, and I think a lot of people do that. You know, they buy it because they, you know, they know what we do. They know that it's going to be kind of a topic from a particular left-wing perspective, and they know we do good stuff, um, and they'll kind of return to that. So I think it's changed through the years, but I think they've had that kind of same strand of, of thinking about like how do we... Yeah, publishing is a, a collective project, and that collective includes the readers as well. Um, and you're... Yeah, that was, you know, really... <laughs> it was funny, actually, uh, thinking about this earlier, because... I was going to talk about that, but you already preempted it, so that's quite good. I'm glad you got that. Well, I was I was looking at some of your your writings on your blog, and and I I, I had been thinking about this because it's like what you ask uh, a publishing house, and and as someone who has moved to London fairly recently, it's been interesting noticing how you know London in particular has like a, a pretty strong culture of these left, both little left bookshops, but there's a lot of you know publishers here. Uh, specifically that are left-wing publishers, um, Verso being one of the big ones, and then like Pluto Press and, and a couple others. Um, and the U.S. has some, uh, it particularly has the anarchist presses like PM and AK books, I think both operate out of the yeah. U.S. Um, but also like the kind of the, there's this tension because you had a piece about, you know, how COVID is very, was a very difficult time for publishing houses that are not these major um, kind of big, you know, Amazon style yes, yeah. book publisher and distributors. Um, but at the same time, there's also, I think like in the U S there's been, a, I was fascinated that um, Charles H care 
publishing suddenly became a thing again <laughs> and it's yeah like, same it's like it's like whoa like like they haven't done then like you know they had some clr james and like this iww stuff that you could get but like suddenly they're publishing you know like these noel and of books they're publishing stuff from schwang about china like it, it was just out of nowhere yeah, um no, i and, was also surprised that like this is tiny place in tiny publisher in chicago or something just like resurrected yeah. itself kind of amazing <laughs> yeah um, so I think it's interesting looking at, you know, the, the that that cultural that that feature as a cultural institution or um, a collective project uh, that it seems like we're in a place where it could be very difficult. Because, I mean, publishing is not an easy business in general, especially just maintaining a, a, a profitable level at, at yeah. with ebooks and with I mean, what mass printing can do now is very hard. Um, but but also thinking about like it seems that there's also the demand or interest in these sort of things on the other hand that is a very kind of pivotal it's kind of a, a cliche now that every left book talks about like after 2008 blah 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 blah, blah. <laughs> but like it, it, there is a, a very legitimate sense that there's a a different kind of interest in culture in in this kind of stuff now yeah i think that's right as well like it's I don't know what the conversations were at first, so around 2008, but I imagine they were fairly pessimistic. Um, but actually, it's been a real boom. You know, it's, it really has. You're right. Like, there's been kind of a renewed interest in the left, you know, it's in ways that we would never have expected, intellectually as well as, obviously, Corbin Sanders, whatever else, is, you know, has failed as they were in the end, you know, so far. Um, you know, it's this kind of renewed interest. And, and Verso, I think, has, has done something towards that. I hope so, at least. Um and yeah, the pandemics are bringing up the pandemic's an interesting one. That, I wrote that piece when it was the early days of it. And we thought, I certainly thought this was, you know, a terminal, right? Mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden, all of the bookshops are closed. We still, despite selling a lot through our website and lots through Amazon, over 50% of our sales are still bookstores. Um, and they were all closed. So we were like, you know, what was going to happen here? Is this going to be every publisher going to get a drop off of 50%? Um, or more for most of the publishers don't sell through their website in the same way. You know, is this going to like, you know, have a real kind of terminal effect on the industry and particularly on small ones like us, you know, we're, we're big for the left, but we're, you know, we're minuscule compared to like most of other kind of big publishers, you know, barely a, a block, a dot on the radar. Um, but actually what happened was people started buying way more books. So <laughs> actually this kind of like my like initial pessimism was overruled by, you know, people, start reading more, buying more books. And I think um, actually, you know, it's, I think most publishers did quite well in the end throughout the pandemic. Maybe this is because people have more time at home, therefore we're reading more. Uh, you know, I, I'm still not really sure why that <laughs> is. But yeah, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a terrible, a terrible pandemic. And I, I think actually shows that there's a kind of real resilience here in this, these kind of ideas and what they're doing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, and, you know, you're right to kind of flag also the kind of changes in publishing. One of the, bring, to bring it back to the radical thinkers, one of the interesting things is that when I think the series first started, we could, there was a lot of books out of print, we could, we could snaffle up. Now, most publishers are looking more and more at their backlist because they can with, you know, um, advances in technology mean that you can do print-on-demand books really cheaply, really easily. Most, you know, even Amazon do it. You know, most publishers will have a distributor or, you know, a printer that will do these. So rather than having to, you know, the, the initial uh, print run for new editions in the past would have had to be 2,000 copies, you know, to make it worthwhile. Now publishers can print 10 copies of a book. And okay, it's going to be a bit more expensive, but it, it's still kind of in the realms of affordability. So there's fewer books that are out of print, just, mm -hmm. you know, kind of languishing dead. Um, than there ever has been. You, know, you can buy basically any book, new, printed new, if you want, you know, if you look hard enough, if you find the publisher, if you get there. So we've had a hard time kind of getting these kind of, um, you know, we're, you know, these kind of classics, lost classics back, just because people are doing what we do um, and kind of looking after them a bit more, which is great in itself. Not so great for the, you know, <laughs> what we're doing with the series because we're kind of looking in envy at all of these. And also, you know, actually, I noticed recently Penguin are doing lots of, um, in their modern classics, lots of like Marxist books now. Mm -hmm. They did Sylvie Federici's, they'd got um, 
I think next year they're they're doing um, Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams, and they did oh, wow, Marxism yeah. as well. Yeah, so I was like, you know, and they're doing that's the same model that Verso uses, which is cheap mass availability of like classic books. Um, so even you know, if the biggest publisher in the world, or you know, whatever it is, is doing what Verso did, we did twenty years ago. I think we broadly done something something pretty good and pretty right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the popularity or the feature, the expansion of kind of mass publishing in and of itself is pretty interesting because I I definitely remember when I was an undergrad as a media studies scholar, I went to like a little workshop or something. Uh, I don't know what you would call it. That was with the the archivist who did you know the special collections of okay, the yeah. Vassar Library, and he had all these different you know collected books that were of different generations and had everything from Char- original Charles Dickens, you know. The um, I don't know what you would call them, kind of like the chapbook style, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, quarterly sheets kind of thing. Um, but he had, you know, um, an original one of the original kind of orange cover, uh, Penguin classics, and he just talked about like the history behind. You know, a guy just said, "I want something that the average person can read on a train that is affordable, but it has an a sense of elegance." and kind of uh, a sleekness to its design, um, which I'm I'm a sucker for cover design. Um, But also looking at now, like how uh, Pelican in the UK is, which is its own kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. a similar kind of feature of of Penguin Publishing has come back, but now they do it with these kind of more modern um, writings. I have like a little book on statistics or um, Mike Savage's book on, you know, inequality and like, and, and stuff like that. Um, and they're, and they are, they're these very portable, sleek looking books that you can just put in your pocket and take with you somewhere. Um, and, and are you I going to get me, get me started <laughs> this? I could talk about like Alan Lane, who's the founder of Penguin for like days. So this is, this is very much my thing. It's like, I think mean, a really fascinating example of like the cultural democracy in Britain and what happened with, you know, this is, I suppose it's coming in the 1930s. You get you know, around, I mean, mass literacy had come earlier, but, you know, the mass readership of, of books was this kind of underdeveloped thing. You know, it was, you know, only really in, into the 20th century do you get kind of this real kind of, you know, working class access to, to cultural products. And, and Penguin was founded by Ellen Lane, who wanted to, um, you know, who saw, I suppose, the gap in the market. He was a, he was a businessman. Um, and he saw this gap in the market for, you know, most people couldn't afford books. They were hardbacks. You buy from bookstores, it'd be unaffordable for the average reader. So we found a way doing these paperbacks to make them as cheaply available as possible, make them, as you say, nice objects, good-looking objects. And rather than selling them in bookstores, he sold them in like train stations and in like pharmacies. Um, you know, there was like, where do the general readers buy things from? And it was like, you know, there was supposed to be the no more than the cost of a packet of cigarettes. So you get this kind of um yeah, if a, if a working class person is quite paternalistic, if a working class person is going to spend it on cigarettes, they can spend it on books, you know, instead. That kind of like paternalist attitude, but it worked. It kind of was a revolution, right? And it's kind of mass revolution of, of cheaply available, good quality reading material. And, you know, it really pushed the boundaries of what was, what was available, what kind of books people were reading. Um, and it was something kind of paternalistic about that. They were like, well, this is what's good for the working class. We've got to give them good stuff rather than like the, you know, the cheap trash you know, newsprints. Um, but, it, you know, it really did kind of open things up for, for, for a generation of readers. Um, you know, I've also completely obsessed with, like, re- like finding old Penguin classics and, and kind of love them. And actually, this, you know, Penguin also um, kind of segues pretty well into, like, Verso. You know, before um, before Verso was founded, for when you left books as it was then, called then at the start, um, when you left you did books with Penguin. And they did a series of books. So I've got got a few that actually you know sitting right next to them. But like, yeah, these kind of like again, like cheaply available collections, mm-hmm. mainly of essays. This one was the first one, which was Fontana called Towards Socialism by Perry An- per- edited by Perry Anderson and Robin Blackburn when they were in their like early 20s, which mm-hmm. is pretty painful because they like massive synoptic essays you still get now. Um, but they were doing that with Penguin and other kind of big publishers before they sat found their own, because they saw how well they were doing. One of them is called a Student Power. It was published in 68. And it was like a reflection on kind of the student struggles in 68. Done, turned around very quickly, I think. So it was like a huge, like big bestseller. I think if you get the, um, you know, the Penguin Classics, Marx's Capital, 
and you look in it, I think it says, you know, like co-published with like the new left review kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, that that was, uh, uh, the penguin marks library it was called. And that was an initiative of, um, of uh, New Left Review, they went to Penguin, you know, their, their editor at Penguin, and, and proposed this, doing this kind of series of translations. And, you know, it's one of the things now, kind of, God, if that, at first I would have been, I think it was in the early 70s, so just as kind of New Left books were going, and they needed kind of, I think they were kind of cash-strapped, so they went mm-hmm. to Penguin with it. But, God, if we if we had capital, <laughs> we'd be selling tons of it every year. Yeah. Kind of rue that now. But, um, yeah, no, exactly. It was, it was all kind of tied in together, and... You know, I think Penguin in the 60s had a lot of kind of people who were in and involved in the left working for them. And one of the, um, the person who did their just classic designs of the 60s, kind of amazing ones, this guy, Germano Ficetti, an amazing, so that really kind of revolutionary designer who kind of led them through the 60s. Um, he started off designing kind of left-wing magazines, um, particularly New Left. He was involved with the New Left. So he did, he was the main designer of New Universities and Left Review, which is the precursor for New Left Review. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's these kind of, you know, crossing intersections between these things. And that's, you know, part of the radical thinkers was, was to do something similar now. You know, it was to um, far less successfully than Penguin Classics, but still, you know, <laughs> similar, similar ballpark. What you said about, you know, that kind of crossover and the, um, that that kind of tension of like the paternalistic attitude but the like success of reaching a mass audience reminds me of, whenever i talk with someone who is involved with first though i feel like i bring up raymond williams because he's one of the right. figures that we've enjoyed from from when we've been reading and you know we we had phil o'brien on who's got the new collection you know that's edited coming out but i i, I was struck how at my sociology program in my master's program here, we actually opened up reading, you know, the the famous Culturist Ordinary essay, and we watched a little documentary that had a bit about him, but also um, Levis, mm-hmm. and how you know you can see how Levis is this strong influence on on Williams, but there's that famous you know infamous bit where Levis is talking about like, oh, the working class is just they they don't they don't know what to do with culture, they just eat their fish and chips, and they just and this like totally disgusted like attitude towards uh the working class while still demanding like we need to give them culture kind of thing um but you see that kind of tension into into raymond williams much more appreciative attempt to say like we want a literary culture for the working class but in the working class and not like for but against like the working class kind of so that's kind of an interesting thing looking at you know penguin now is this huge publishing giant and Verso is, is like you said, a big left-wing publisher, but obviously not. As someone who's looked at at the job searches for Macmillan and Penguin, and you quickly realize, oh, there's five giant conglomerates that run like all these publishing houses. Like, you know, it, it's a classic countercultural kind of tension. Like, you want to produce something for a wide audience that is reaching the kind of common sense of the age, but not crude pedagogy in, in its yeah, yeah, in its completely. in its approach. Yeah, that's completely, yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you brought up Williams as well, because Williams is uh, probably the kind of most formative um, kind of influence on my own kind of intellectual development, which, you know, obviously feeds in so much from the work I do at Verso as well. And yeah, I think you're right, this kind of like the idea that, as you said, you know, culture is ordinary. So it is not only, you know, um, kind of accessible and, 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 um, uh, 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 you know, ordering people involved in its creation, but more than that, they you know you bring things to the text as well. Um, you bring kind of a personal, like a life experience, and everyone kind of therefore reads it through their own background. It's you know, culture is this kind of all pervasive thing that we exist in. Yeah, against the kind of F. Olivis kind of paternalism, this kind of like you know trying to keep this um, kind of high cultural, um, you know, high culture uh, uh, kind of elite. You know, very kind of elite conception of what culture is and who can do it. I think, yeah, I think Penguin Penguin has that real pivotal position where it moves from that kind of high cultural conception of books to a mass one. You know, there's also at the same time you have the kind of left lever sites, people like Richard Hoggart, who were saying, you know, everyone, you know, kind of anthropologically, almost, everyone has the kind of, we're all involved in cultural creation and formation, but then was kind of um, at the same time, uh, you know, disparaging of the kind of mass culture that was consumed by working class people. And I think actually, you know, William Sen comes later and I think there's a much more kind of democratic, much more kind of open conception from him. Um, and one that I think is 
it's still, you know, we should, you know, we we can still learn a huge amount from Williams. I think, I think everyone should read Williams. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. trumpet this. And I'm glad you had Phil on because the, the collection actually just, uh, it's out, I think early next year, I think it's in January or February next year. The collection's fantastic. It's a really good kind of collection of, new collection of Williams' work. And I'm really super excited that we've got that one coming out. Um, it's good, to, you know, another, another way for us to, um, you know, pay homage to, to the, the people who are formative in the company and, and kind of what we do. Um, it's good. I'm, I'm glad that we do things like this still. I'm particularly excited for, for that, that collection in part because there was the excerpt on the um, Verso blog of the transcript of the uh, speech on um, kind of modernism because we did an episode on the, you know, Radical Thinkers book yeah. uh, uh, of his on, on modernism which has the the usual standard version of that speech, which was kind of cobbled together in hindsight by someone who heard it and had yeah. access to his lecture notes. So having it be like, oh, there's an actual fuller version of that speech is like uh, very exciting. Um, yeah, and I think it's that. like, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't compared line by line, but according to Phil, the editor, it, it's, it's pretty different, um, actually. You know, the, the actual transcription is, is much more complex, much more, kind of interesting than the, the what we previously had available which again was like you know a, a kind of foundational text it was, it was hugely influential so it's kind of wild that we have this new version even more complex and intense than than the original one that was still kind of had such lasting influence yeah no, it's great and and speaking again of bringing bringing back texts or, or looking at backlogs and things um one of the uh co-hosts of the podcast actually was trying to figure out how texts were chosen for radical thinkers and found an old Facebook like call to, you know, have people <laughs> submit suggestions so long as they could show that it was out of print um, under a certain, you know, word counter page length and uh, you know, just kind of like, and just generally interesting, hopefully. This is, this is Sebastian Budgem, right? The infamous Sebastian Budgem. I, I think um, that's, I think yeah. that's who he said had posted it. Yeah, but, of course, um, classic. Um, but yeah, no, this is, I mean, how do we find the text that go into it is a really interesting question. I think actually, you know, the, the, the first initial series, were made, as I said, they were mainly, you know, things that we'd done in the past and were still selling in whatever kind of old edition we had at the time. And so it was kind of like putting them in new packaging, giving them a kind of second, a second, a second go, basically, a second, you know, chance at kind of reaching an audience and having them cheaply available as well. Because once a book's sold out its initial runs, you're basically breaking even on it so you can sell it cheaper more or less is, is how the kind of economics of that work um, and then as I said you know before after a while you run out of those books you know there's only so many kind of theoretical texts and we're you know sometimes you do stretch the idea of what a radical thinker is you know it's it's they were supposed to be kind of philosophy theoretical texts but sometimes they're, they're less so um, just because we've, we've had to kind of push that a bit and, and just to get things in um, and very often, I think there must have been stuff that was, a lot of times it's just, you know, what the people in the company enjoy, um, what we want to work on. Um, some of the recent series, the, the thematic ones have been interesting ones to put together just because on a couple of occasions, they were, we just had a single book we had in mind and we tried to create, find three of the books around it. Um that would fit into a series. So I think I don't I didn't think I worked on the Judaism one, but for instance, that one I think came from the Michael Lovey book on Utopian Thought. And I think then it was fairly easy to kind of fit the others, Julian Rose and and um and there's uh, Isaac Deutscher and I can't remember the, the fourth one is on in that series, but you know, fairly easy to fit them around. There was others like um the kind of gay liberation one. I think I suggested there was a book by in published in the seventies called um, Spiral Path by David Fernback, who's one of our translators. He's a very like, incredibly intelligent guy, and, and his, he ran um, a publisher called Gay Men's Press in the eighties. It was very um, incredibly influential as well um, throughout, and they published kind of gay classics and, and gay kind of literature and non non fiction as well. He wrote this book called Spiral Path, which is like a Marxist account of like, gay liberation. And I really, I thought, this is it's kind of wild. I'd never heard it before. I bought a copy from Stuart Hall's book sale when he, uh, like all of his books were donated to Houseman's. I saw it out, so this is weird. Never heard of this. Read it. It's kind of wild. It's, it's a bit of a wild ride, the book. I was like, we should redo this. 
we thought some of the text go around it. And then David Fernback was like, I don't want this published, actually. I don't think it, it deserves to be republished. So we had to find some new ones to go around it instead. So, you know, it's it's kind of weird sometimes the way that these work. And, you know, I think they all are really good. I think all the series that we did were, were really strong. We've also then kind of ran out of of those single books that we could base it around. It's, it's quite hard to pick a themed mm-hmm. selection. And some of them didn't, you know, didn't sell as well. Um, I think the, you know, the science one was a difficult sell. Right. Um, despite the fact that it's, I think it's really, it's a really funny series. It's just a very like odd selection. I think really <laughs> great. Um, and there's a couple of others where, that were kind of something, I think the Freud one as well was slightly more difficult as well. Um, so, you know, in the future, we're, we're, you know, currently discussing at, you know, different levels, what do we do with the future of the series? And actually, it's kind of undecided. It's kind of exciting. Like, we can we can do something new with it, I suppose. And we're, that's why there hasn't been a, a new series for a little while, because we, we're kind of still trying to figure that out. So mm-hmm. if anyone has any ideas, send, yeah. send them to me. <laughs> yeah, I'll see if... Uh... My co-host will can brainstorm. Yes, <laughs> okay. please do. Yeah. We'll send a white paper out. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, we are curious what's going to happen because not to disparage the new sets, but I think we all were a little bit like, oh, it's the same. It's the first two sets. Like we're already reading these. I know. Like, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> like, but they do have nice new covers, so at least we're getting that. And the covers well, are much nicer. Them. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, not the. I remember one of the first interviews I did on Four Marks. I think I remember the guy being like, "Yeah, it has that nasty brown cover on it," and like yep. nobody was ever like, "Oh yeah, the classic brown cover there." Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. No, I know that. I mean, they were in in their time and place. They were kind of cool. Those original first few series, but you know, I think it really got. It's kind of like you know, um, kind of design identity when they started doing the white ones. And then, mm-hmm. you know, with the kind of interesting kind of squiggles on the front that were symbolic in some way. Um, it took me years to realize that Walter Benjamin's on the German tragic drama. If you look, it's a picture of Germany crying. So it's like Germany mm-hmm. has a face that's crying, which is very odd, but kind of amazing. And that was a guy called Andy Pressman. He was our, at the time, our design director at Verso. He's now still kind of around to still do things for us, but, um, uh, yeah, not so involved anymore, but he still does all of those. And mm-hmm. He's kind of an amazing designer, does some really amazing stuff for us. And yeah, it's kind of his vision that we do with the radical thinkers and design. Uh, yeah, yeah, they are the very, nasty brown. Yeah, the 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 simple line ones are definitely a little bit more elegant. Um, yeah, and, overall. The, the, and I think the kind of uh, the uh, influence or the, the kind of um, you know what what spurred that was. I think those like simple French and German books, you know, like Zerkamp, they do the kind of theory series and it's the same kind of dark gray uh, cover was just as simple, just says, you know, who it is on the front in kind of nice, like really beautiful, classic kind of bold um, sans serif typeface in the front. That's all it is. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of French publishers who do this. I mean, go to a French bookshop store and like, it's just like rows of like white spines because they just, you know, have very simple kind of classic books. They don't do kind of jazzy covers like British and American publishers do in quite quite such the same extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the that was the kind of um, the the thing that influenced Andrew's designs of those. Kind of kind of amazing, really, actually. I remember seeing some people sharing how the recent Aaron Beninov book has been translated into German. So there were people on Twitter, you know, with the German edition, and it was basically just an orange brick that just had it in German. And that was it. There, yeah, there's no fancy design on it or anything. It just had the title, and it's 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 extensively longer title in German. Yeah, of course. And that, that was it. Just on, on plain orange. Yeah, um, that's like a classic German. Yeah, it's, it's a particular thing I think about just German and French publishing that they just have these like very very simple cover designs. The rest of the world just uses like really jazzy <laughs> kind of like uh, graphics and stuff. Yeah, they just don't care. <laughs> I am I am curious to see uh, where the the series continues to go. Uh, I was going to ask, are you familiar with how there's the um, there's like the bot on Twitter that just produces oh, yes. radical figures covers? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, is that still going? I actually got. I, yeah, I haven't seen it, that for a little while. Yeah, it still occasionally produces ones. Um, there, 
like they're they're hit or miss but there's occasionally ones that made me laugh i think uh yeah. you know I, I, if there's a good one i occasionally tweet about how i can't wait <laughs> to read it on, on this <laughs> podcast or like the, i think the last one that made me that really got me was called like theory of lumps or something just like it's total nonsense oh, that's actually, like, no that's actually coming out that's yeah. back for next year so watch yeah. out for the theory of lumps yeah <laughs> um it's my book before we close out uh i'll give you an opportunity just is there anything you know forthcoming from verso what what are the big the the big heavy hitters that you think people should be checking that you, you can talk it's, about it's going to be really funny now because i'm um you know when you work on books and when you edit them you're thinking constantly like two or three years in advance because you know i work with an author to develop an idea and then the book will come out three years later so my in my head i can only think of the ones that are just you know if i tell you them now you're, you know, you're going to be waiting a long time. Yeah. So I'll talk about just the ones I've like worked on recently that have just come out. So, you know, I think for one, the kind of Raymond Williams collection um, that Phil O'Brien's kind of really beautifully put together is is pretty extraordinary. I think it is pretty amazing. A lot of this stuff that's not been published before, or if it is, is completely impossible to kind of track down. Um, and Phil's done an amazing job. He's kind of searched through archives and listened to like endless hours of recordings to get this thing out. And it, it, it's really it's a really kind of brilliant thing. Um, I mean, another one I'm really excited about next year is um, Ben Tarnoff's book, um, which is called Internet for the People. And I think it's, I think it's the first serious attempt by a leftist to think about what a socialist project for the internet should be. Um, you know, most of the time the left takes its cues from kind of liberal kind of antitrust measures on the internet, you know, break up, break up Facebook. You don't want them that big. And that's where we stop. Mm -hmm. Ben think tries to think about actually, yeah, how do we deal with the internet? What do we do? We have to like have a strategy for each of the, you know, each of the big kind of platform giants, what they do. We have to think about what they do. How can we take over? How can we use them in certain ways? And and also the infrastructure of the internet, you know, and um, he thinks about the pipes and the, the cables that kind of run under the ocean. Um, and to be honest, you know, having, you know, I think I, you know, I'm well versed in 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 a uh, 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 knowledge. But I don't think about the pipes of the internet. You don't think there's like an actual physical infrastructure, which is mm -hmm. extensive, huge, stretching across the world, you know, all enveloping. Um, and you think about the internet, you think about going on Facebook or Twitter or mm -hmm. something, you know, you don't think about how it actually like floats around the world. Anyway, that book would be amazing. I'm really kind of excited. Um, and also a recent one I've done, which is a, like an amazing kind of short book on, on um, kind of tech and capitalism, which is by um, Phil Jones called Work Without the Worker. It just came out a few mm -hmm. months ago. And it's, it's, you know, I think rightly being kind of, um, being really widely read and praised. I think it's, it's, a, it's a really great book. All of those, all of the books I work on, I'm kind of incredibly proud of. Um, I'm also now blanking on any other book uh, that we've got coming out, but yeah. we've got the catalog out. It's very good. <laughs> uh, I One thing that I, I, I'm interested in, partially because of a future interview, is I, I hopefully will be talking with, um, I don't exactly know how you pronounce it. I'm assuming it's just Soren Mao. Soren Mao? Oh, yeah, Soren Mao, yeah, exactly. Um, and the English translation of this book that's been reading in translations incredibly fast across Europe. I'm, I, I was like, I haven't seen a book of just this many things picking up the translations of it. Um, no, it's okay. And also from Danish, which are like, mm -hmm. I don't see many Danish translations yeah. anywhere. And then all of a sudden, yeah. No, I think in, in Denmark, it's caused like a real stir. I think it's been like one of the most talked about um, uh, kind of Danish leftist books for a long time. And the kind of debates are still going on. And I think it's been really generative for kind of the Danish left to think through this book. And, and yeah, I think I'm also excited about it. I'm not working on that one. with my colleague mm -hmm. Sebastian, who I mentioned earlier, who, um, who does most of our translations from European languages. And, but I think that's going to be an incredibly exciting book as well. Yeah, yeah. hopefully I'll be talking with him in, in January. Um, he, I'm, I'm sure he's been quite busy because he's been like doing interviews. And yeah, like you said, exactly. it, it, it seems like it made a big splash. Um, yeah there so but hopefully i'll be able to talk with him and have him elaborate on it it, it was funny because i originally reached out because usually when we do interviews we try to match it pretty one-to-one -one with what we just read but it, it it can be kind of hard especially set two has a lot of like not widely discussed books in it right now like we did the tony negri one on descartes and it's like there's oh, not yeah, many people course. talking about the Tony Negri book on Descartes right now, believe it or not. No, um, you're right. I've got, I completely forgot we did that one. Yeah, that, you're right. Actually, looking at the second, the list of the second ones, um, there is some, 
I suppose they're really, really theory ones, the second mm-hmm. second, the first couple, right? So um, although that Gambon book's great. From the perspective of trying to get people to interact with some of the literature, it's interesting to see what people are excited about. And sometimes when people are like, oh, I can come on, but I don't know if I have much to say about this particular book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it, it's been an interesting, I think this is one of my favorite parts of doing this is just seeing which authors can come on and which yeah, scholars yeah, cool. and people are, are excited to talk about these books um, or, yeah. or the topics related to them. Of course. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What's your favorite radical thinker that you've read? Because this is something I like to know. Like, I'm just mm. sorry if, if this is for, you know, regular listeners of the podcast. I'm sorry if, <laughs> if I'm asking a well-trodden question, but. <laughs> No, I mean, it's partially hard to say because, I mean, we're only working through set one and two so far, and then there's just stuff that I've just priorly read occasionally on my own. And sometimes it's also like, like you know, I'm a big Walter Benjamin fan, but I don't know if theory of German tragic drama is like necessarily my favorite thing by him. Um, I do think in terms of the book set, um, I, I really do love the Henry Lefebvre uh, book on the modernity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's a really fun book by him and it's some of his best kind of his ability to be a poetic writer while trying to engage in these kind of like theoretical issues. And it, it's a, I remember reading it in part because it reminded me a lot of um, Marshall Berman's. Mm. Um, oh yeah. That's an, I love that Berman book. Yeah. All that is like, solid, oh, which that was like book. one of the first books I ever read that I had never read anything that was someone like sympathetically talking about Marxism and Marx in a serious way before. And then both books, I I had a a strong obsession from that book with um, Faust. Like I did my thesis on Faust um, and the Lefebvre book also has a long section on, uh, on like the devil is a symbol of modernity, which I love because it really. It, yeah, I've so not a, read that Lefebvre book, but I'm going to have to now. This sounds it's actually quite selling it to me. Fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun book. It's 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 varied. Like it, it it's it's sort of presented as just like each chapter is just an aspect of modernity that he wants to explore. Uh, so okay, it's yeah, yeah, rather diffuse, but it, it's a really fun book, and it has some really interesting stuff in it. Um, I'm trying to think about what other. No, that's great. So I also, I'm also a big, big Faust fan. I did my yeah. MA thesis on, on Walter Benjamin's Origins of the German Tragic Drama mm-hmm. and Goethe. So yeah. yeah, this was my, I also love that. That I mean, the, the Origins of the German Tragic Drama is a weird book. It just mm-hmm. is quite odd. And it doesn't, it's, 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 a, it's a weird thing. It's incredibly dense and difficult to read. Mm-hmm. But I do love it. I, I yeah, it's a I, long it time trying great. to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where it's a shame that it's one of the only kind of finished books by him um really exactly exactly i'm trying to remember i actually really like the uh goran therburn book on uh i think it's the what does the ruling class do when it rules yeah that is amazing it's brilliant book isn't it yeah it's a really just a very clear like one of the best uses of kind of some of the althusserian stuff that sort of cuts through some of the overblown like bullshit <laughs> that you can get in Althusser, um, j- yeah. and and just applies it super concretely as a theory um, kind of a, a really good middle point where you can see what some of the people like Eric and Wright were, were doing and like that middle point between the analytic and the structuralist kind of you know American continental positions yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really good like you know if if someone was like going to be like oh, like, how can you believe that there's, like, a ruling class or something? It, like, you could just hand over that book and it would not be an imposing, like, screed. It, it's, like, a very serious, like, straightforward attempt to talk about the issues of, like, structural effects in politics. Um, uh, so that that one's a really good one. I, I really want to read... I actually haven't read the first Roy Bashkar book um, on critical realism, but I've read some of his later books. Have you read the book about angels that he wrote? No, no, I haven't. I haven't gone into his like mystical yeah. phase, but I've read like the the one that's directly after the first book. That's basically yeah. where he applies it to social sciences um, yeah. instead. Um, and I've always been fascinated by the more rigorous, scientifically oriented strand of critical realism. Has always yeah, yeah, been yeah. kind of interesting to me as a philosophy of science. Um, so I've I have that one on my shelf, and I want to read it. But he's he's again one of the authors that 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 kind of early work by him I've always found. Uh, pretty interesting 
Um, I've got to say, these are all these are very good choices because they're none of them I would have guessed before. <laughs> I just thought, you know, it, it's you know this, and I suppose it shows just the kind of like range and the depth of radical thinkers. Particularly, you know, the, the first bunch of series, so much stuff in there. You know, we got mm-hmm. the stuff, we got the all-time classics like you know, your Altazar and your you know your Adorno. Minimum Moralis continues to sell a shared mm-hmm. load of books. You know, it's, it, people love that. It's an amazing book. Um, but yeah, we also did things like Roy Bascar, which is. <laughs> I think few few people read read too few yeah. probably, um, but you know had a moment in the nineties and eighties, but I don't think it's kind of forgotten now. Um, yeah, and it's one that we have and we continue to do well with. Um, I think from some of the early ones, though, I, I really do love both the the Ray Van Williams books and those first two sets, yeah, and especially um, the ver- like the very first one, um, which we did as our first episode. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, really the culture culture materialism. Yeah. It's got a lot of really good stuff in it. It's a very good kind of like a, a very good examination of just kind of like a lot of the ideas about materialism or, you know, what what a kind of materialist view means without being this kind of dogmatic, you know, crude. Uh, it, it's it's a really good collection of his work on that. And and some of his stuff on things like you know um the material nature of communications that's yeah. very forward thinking um and then i think you know the modernity book is is a good it, it both has some fun stuff that's kind of more just literary but it also has some really powerful stuff on it just being one of his later books you know yeah. it's posthumously made and so it has some really good examinations where he's just kind of writing politically about the situations of you know deindustrialization the dissolution of kind of the communal nature of working class politics and culture that he kind of foundational to a lot of what he saw in cultural studies um, and, and his kind of trying to reframe and rework that in in the face of what was going on by the, you know, the eighties. And and there's a specific essay in there. It has a paragraph that I remember reading it and just being like, Oh my gosh, this just reads so, so profoundly like, evocative right now about you know like the kind of conditions of what work is going to look like after after his like short his death shortly after like it it, it's a it's a both those books i think are very very i haven't read the politics of modernism book for you know getting on for a decade i suppose now and i'm now i'm gonna have to go and reread it you said this so thank you for adding to my list of reading yeah, yeah. Again. Yeah. you're supposed to be the other way around isn't it i'm supposed to come down from verso and tell everyone to read these books but no you could listen to patrick <laughs> um the series it, uh, it's gone on for so long and it has so many um so many books yeah. and, and there's and there's some pretty interesting ones that are kind of yeah, that I, I've been curious about, and I hope that the podcast keeps going on long enough that we reach, you know, a couple of hundred books to get to. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot, and we're doing like one a month on a good <laughs> on a good schedule. So, and it's also, I think, it's interesting looking at how sometimes these kind of sets and books you find kind of hidden gems or things that aren't major works by people yeah. because of the the way that it was structured uh andrew the, one of our co-hosts uh, has often joked about like nothing says we couldn't get the rights to S- society of the spectacle like comments on society of the spectacle no, exactly. being right. thing published <laughs> um <laughs> like, that's exactly right yeah there you go <laughs> um but but it's interesting because like you know or you look at that and you're like oh there's this other guy de board book or, or there's yeah. panegyric and like yeah, i remember exactly. You know, we were looking at, at Guy Debord stuff, and someone was like, I, "I didn't even know he wrote this autobiography called this. Like, I had no idea." Um, so you get like, yeah, these little glimmers of just other interesting stuff that these major figures were writing that are Completely. not the yeah, with this, and it, you know, it is sometimes it's just weird. I think the reason why we did so much Debord, you know, so the size of this spectacle kind of came was published into English much earlier, um, but I think we had someone working for Verso in the '90s who was a big Guy Debord fan. I think just because of that, we did loads of Guy Debord in the 90s that were like the kind of slightly more minor works of his. Um, yeah, people only really read Society of the Spectacle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, loads of them. Um, yeah, it's all sorts of weird things in Verso's kind of back catalogue that you kind of stumble across. Mm-hmm. And, there, and there's also, you know, there's the famous Minimal Moralia Adorno, but like a lot of the other Adorno in it is like, his works on specific, you know, on Wagner or on music or... Completely. Not, yeah. you know, it's not... 
negative dialectics or something. Yeah, it's very interesting with the stuff that pops up. And when you see like, oh, this was written by this person. Yeah, completely. I, I wouldn't, have, wouldn't have checked it out otherwise. But um, before we just keep talking about books, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I should. Uh, thank you so much for coming on um, and just talking about the history of the set and kind of what publishing, a, a glimpse into the world of publishing these books. Um, it's, it's very appreciated. Um, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope that our listeners uh, take a glimpse at some of the stuff in the sets. Maybe they can provide suggestions uh, on our Twitter or something about stuff they'd like to see in a future future ideas. Um, and I hope that, that people check out some of the, the promising books that are just coming out or, or coming out in the future. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. If you enjoy the work that we do, please don't hesitate to leave us a positive review on the podcatcher of your choice, and to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Next up, we're reading The Shores of Politics by Rancière. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.